Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Welcome to a Too Much Effing Perspective rock and roll recreation, where we replay one of our effing favorite episodes from the past. I'm your host, Alan Keller. And I'm your co-host, Alex Hoffman. Coinciding with the release of MTV's special presentation of the Rock the Bells Festival, which celebrates 50 years of hip-hop with LL Cool J, Queen Latifah, Run, DMC, and a host of other legendary acts, we are resurrecting our timeless conversation with Public Enemy producer and original Def Jam Records president, Bill Stephanie. Alex, when we scheduled our talk with Bill, it was kind of coincidental because I just finished listening to the Spotify documentary on The Clash, which is excellent, that was narrated by Chuck D from Public Enemy. And I found out that the reason Chuck started Public Enemy in the first place was a college friend told him to do the rap version of The Clash. Yeah, so we were both pretty surprised when we learned that Bill was that college friend. Yeah, I think that suggestion changed the course of music history. I agree. P.E. has released some of the most acclaimed and consequential albums ever, like It Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back and Fear of a Black Planet. And it was really fun talking with the guy who actually produced our first album. It is not hyperbole to say that Bill was instrumental in helping rap to become among the most popular and important genres in music. So, without further ado... Let's bum rush this show from <laughs> November 8th, 2022 with Bill Stephanie. But first, a short break. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hi, I'm Daniela Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real, honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. Bill, we're so pleased to have you on the show today. Let's jump right in. So, 
In the film, This is Spinal Tap, one of the band's most deflating moments is when the miniature Stonehenge monument descends to the stage in the middle of a concert. You actually had what I'd call the opposite experience. You had an inflating Spinal Tap moment while performing with the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Could you tell us about that? Well, yeah. You know, Alex, when the Beastie Boys' rise starts to happen in 1986 upon the release of their album, License to Ill, they're about to embark on a national tour. And their first big show was at this club in the East Village called The Ritz. And The Ritz around that time was like the place. If you wanted to see Madonna, Duran Duran during that period, before anybody did huge venues, they'd stop by The Ritz. So the Beasties planned their first huge show and their DJ, DJ Hurricane, couldn't make that show. He was on the road with Run DMC, who at that point, their uh, collaboration with Aerosmith, a remake of Aerosmith's classic Walk This Way, is just burning up the charts. So both Mike D and Adrock from the group, and MCA as well, may he rest in peace, approach me. You know, I kind of a little bit look like I could be Hurricane's brother. And at that point, I am the promotions person for Def Jam. So, you know, I have a gig. I have responsibilities promoting great music from LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys and upcoming Public Enemy and Slick Rick and Slayer and Danzig and all of these great groups. So I'm good. Not to them. (laughs) Bill, we're recruiting you to be our DJ for this big rich show. You have no choice. (laughs) Now, during this time, the Beasties were planning to close their shows with just this incredible quote-unquote climax, which would be an inflatable penis rising (laughs) up from the back of the stage. And as the inflatable penis rises to its fullest potential, that would be the closing of the show. (laughs) So as I'm rehearsing with them and getting ready for the big show, I really engage in just a review of my life and its value and worth. (laughs) I had gone to college on a communications media scholarship sponsored by a rock and roll radio station from Long Island at that point, WLIR. It was co-sponsored by the National Urban League, which was, you know, one of the top civil rights organizations in the country. So there were some expectations added to my career and and to my life. (laughs) So you juxtapose with the fact that I'm going to be on stage with a rising penis in the offing. So <laughs> we did the gig. It went fantastically. Uh, it was written up in New York Times. There's a review, I think, by the great writer John Perellis of that first show. And things went well. Luckily, we did not bring out the rising penis for that show. I think the penis only lasted for a couple of shows as <laughs> DJ Hurricane came back. And then it was retired for other mayhem that the Beastie Boys engaged in when they were on the stage. <laughs> that sounds like your Bonehenge moment. <laughs> Bonehenge. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> you were the first president of Def Jam Records, right? I was there, <laughs> you know, as Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons were building their dynasty. 
Well, that's an interesting point because obviously Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons had kind of a interesting dynamic. And we talk about band dynamics on this show a lot. You were kind of the Derek Smalls in the relationship. You were the <laughs> lukewarm water between the fire of Rick Rubin and the ice of Russell Simmons. Yeah. And I'm a bass player. So, you know, I guess it all, <laughs> right, totally. it all does match. Yeah. In an environment which was active, creative, wild, again, it's the Beastie Boys. And between 1985 through 1989, there's the business marriage between Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin. But then there's also Russell Simmons's management company, Rush Productions. And they're managing virtually every rapper at that point in the business, ranging from Curtis Blow to, to Eric B. and Rakim, uh, Jazzy Jeff in The Fresh Prince. So to navigate just that period of intense innovation, creativity, wildness, that downtown era of new wave and punk and hardcore and clubs like CBGB's, that, that it's all really one merged together. So whether it was in the office of Def Jam, working with Rick and Russell, or being amongst all of that, I just thought I had a place to be the sober guy. <laughs> right. Not necessarily the suit, but the guy who's going to make sure that the office is running, that we're working well with our partners at CBS Records, that everything is operating as the two creators who put the company together get to be creative. That's a real art form in my experience, being able to tread that line between the creative folks and bless them, all their eccentricities the things that really make them creative, and having to keep the proverbial trains running on time, and somebody's got to do it. You know, I got to a point, because I was on the creative side too. I was producing Public Enemy, and I was in the studio every night, and then would get to the office by about 11 a.m. So, you know, I'm not getting any sleep, but, you know, everybody's young. There really had to be some sort of adult in the room. So, I figured, look, Russell Simmons, Rick Rubin, the bomb squad of Hank Shockley and Chuck D producing P.E. records. The Beasties themselves, LL Cool J was a great producer on his own right. You know, we had all of these creative folks, but we had a dearth of folks who could be in the office. So I always had that creative instinct as part of my personality, but then I just saw what the need was for an administrator while, you know, we're selling millions of LL Cool J and Beastie Boy and Public Enemy records. But you're a young man at the time, right? You sound like you were preternaturally mature to be able to become <laughs> the business guy in that room. Chuck D says that when I was 19, I was actually 40 years old. <laughs> He'll go around saying, that. oh yeah, he's been 40 forever. <laughs> well, let's talk about Chuck D for a second, because you gave him what I think is one of the most consequential pieces of advice in music history. You told him he should start the rap version of The Clash. And that was the impetus behind the creation of Public Enemy, right? Yeah, it was a team effort. I was lucky to attend Adelphi University during the years that Carlton Ridenour, a.k.a. Chuck D., was also studying at the school. And this is 1982-ish. Yep. And I'm just starting on our college radio station to play hip hop. I'm 19. I'm going to the uh, university cafeteria to get my daily lunch 
And I see a guy in a silk DJ crew jacket emblazoned on the back Spectrum City. Now, Spectrum City was like the cool DJ unit for Long Island during those years. All the great hip-hop R&B parties for teens of that time were DJed by Spectrum City. So I'm scratching my head. How could somebody so cool from Spectrum City be on the Adelphi campus? So I approach him and so I say, hey man, I'm Bill Stephanie. I go by the name, Mr. Bill on uh, 90.3 FM WBAU. I play hip hop. He said, yeah, I know who you are. I listen to you. Big fan of what you're doing on the radio station. So I said, hey man, would Spectrum City consent to coming up to my show and, and to the station? And that meeting in 1982 became the foundation for Public Enemy and for the later considerations of taking the idea of, in essence, merging the clash with Run DMC. Mm. It's without question a mashup of what were the two impacting groups from 1984-ish. And I was lucky to attend the Clash's show in New York City at Bonds International. You couldn't get tickets, but the owners of the station somehow snuck a ticket to me. And that's where I got to see Joe Strummer wow. and Mick Jones and the whole crew and said, hey, this is rock and roll. I think they're fantastic. So when I got the opportunity via Rick Rubin of taking my college classmate and turning him into an artist or an entity that would have some sort of value on Def Jam, the idea of merging just those two fantastic groups along with the genius of Chuck and our production team with Hank Shockley just all came together and the rest became, as they say, history. Wow. Yeah, boy! How did Flavor Flav come into the mix? He must have... Well, needless to say, he added some interesting chemistry to the whole thing. Sure, sure. Now, Flavor went by the name MC DJ Flavor Flav, and he wasn't affiliated. This is before Public Enemy. He was basically from the same neighborhood that Chuck and the Spectrum City DJ Collective came from. He was from Freeport, Long Island, which is where Public Enemy, Eddie Murphy, and Howard Stern all hail from. Hmm. So Flavor was friends with the group, and he was just this character who hung around our college radio station, attended the gigs that Spectrum City DJed. He was a rapper. He was a singer. He was a musician. He could play piano, and, and he could drummer, bass. I mean, he was this weird guy. You know, I sometimes compare Flavor to um, the Marx Brothers, in that one of the uh, the Marx Brothers was Harpo Marx, who was the clown of the group. Right. But then, you know, Harpo would sit down on a harp and then, you know, he'd wind up playing Tchaikovsky and, you know, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> and then when you went to shake his hand, he'd give you his foot. <laughs> so Flavor had that sort of element where he was usually the cut up, but then you'd see under that veneer of clowning behavior that he was kind of a genius too. It was just this weird thing. So I would do my uh, college radio rap show 
and he'd walk around. And this is still during the period when we had cassettes. And he would have about 40 cassettes of his own music, of all sorts of different songs and raps, uh, different things that he was working on. And you could hear them sort of jingle jangle in the bag that he would, <laughs> you could hear him coming. <laughs> uh, and I'm shaking my head. Oh my gosh, Flavor's going to come into my studio. He's going to make me play one of his raps, claustrophobia attack, whatever. You know, uh, I, I can't deal with this. So when we were putting together Public Enemy, again, I, you know, I wanted PE to be the clash, respected, you know, hardcore about politics, respected in a clash Bob Marley sort of way. My partners, both Chuck D and Hank Shockley, said, you know what? We need to put flavor in the group. I said, what, are you kidding? <laughs> flavor? This is like putting Harpo Marx into the Beatles. No, we can't do this. No, we need flavor because Chuck has the preacher's voice and it's driving. And Chuck is basically, imagine Martin Luther King or Jesse Jackson if they were rappers. But in order to get the message to the people, for them to feel it, you need a counter to Chuck. Hmm. So, you know, yin yang, let's put flavor in the group. First, I objected, but then I relented. And it was one of the best overruling decisions that I've ever had because those guys were completely right. I remember hearing Yo Bum Rush the show when it first came out and being blown away by the contrast between Chuck D and Flavor Flav. It was like Chuck D was the shaving cream and Flavor Flav was the razor. Yeah, yeah. It was amazing to see it develop because, again, we didn't have any notions of creating a group with Chuck and Flavor. Chuck actually had a different partner in a different group prior to Public Enemy. So they actually went into the studio and recorded two singles. It really didn't do anything, but he had a partner, Aaron Allen, who went by the name Butch Cassidy. But things didn't work out. So when we did Public Enemy, I think Chuck and Hank took that configuration that seemed to have a little bit of traction for that single that didn't go anywhere, but now married perhaps to the larger concept of the rapping version of The Clash, you're on Def Jam, which is already a hit label with LL Cool J and the Beastie Boys. We're affiliated and distributed by Columbia Records. The label of Bruce Springsteen and Billy Joel, all of those variables seem to come together to develop something pretty special. So Flavor and the role that he played and how it kind of came to be, you'd sense he was a mercurial character. Didn't he disappear from time to time? Yeah, yeah. You know, he just has that personality to be engaging wherever and whenever. And sometimes that level of engagement will uh, keep you away from your priorities and even your group early on. So there was a point, the group was on tour. They're in a the city. They're about to jump on stage and there's no flavor. Chuck can go out there, but what's going to happen without flavor? This is a frightening prospect. <laughs> so I don't know if it was Chuck. I don't know if it was the road manager, 
But anyone familiar with PE knows that they have a group that sort of serves as onstage security. They're called security of the first world. Mm. So one of the members, you know, he kind of looked like flavor. He was fairly thin, pretty much the same complexion, pretty much the same height. So someone on the road scratched their head and said, you know what? If we put the hat, if we put the sunglasses, if we put a clock around his neck, <laughs> and he just does the movements and lip syncs from a distance, who's really going to know? <laughs> and guess what? Nobody knew the better. So 35 years later, we still refer to that as the artificial flavor moment. <laughs> For a head-bangingly good time, dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here, we don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the head-banging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. This is the story of Whitney Houston. This is the story of Kurt Cobain. Of George Michael, of Otis Redding, of Amy Winehouse, of Michael Hutchins, Bob Marley. This is the story of Prince. It's a new podcast series. About how they died, why they died, and why we're still talking about them so long after. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. It's storytelling. But it's more than that, because rock stars... They tell us how we feel... They change our mood. They change the clothes we wear, the people we hang out with. The way we remember things. It's them who give us those ludicrous moments, the ones where you're... Jumping around, singing your heart out, feeling understood. And it's those moments we'll help you remember, the ones you're thinking about right now. That feeling. That feeling. It's coming soon from Crowd Network. Just search for Death of a Rockstar on your podcast app. And subscribe now. So, Bill, what is your favorite moment in This Is Spinal Tap and why? I know that I personally related to Artie Fufkin, <laughs> so brilliantly played <laughs> by Paul Schaefer. I was in the middle of a number of failed in stores, too, <laughs> you know, where nobody showed up, where you just say, hey, please kick my behind. And I tried to use those experiences to keep my career going. But- Spinal Tap as just an artistic expression, just great. It's very much a New York film as a New Yorker because you have Rob Reiner, you have Michael McCain, Christopher Guest, Fran Drescher, Bruno Kirby, Billy Crystal, all of that sort of humor, borscht belt, cat skills filtered into a rock and roll experience for a different younger generation. And it's just like the jokes just kept on hitting, you know, <laughs> mime is money is so Catskills Borscht Belt to me. Having rewatched it after not seeing it for a long time, 
I, it was as fresh and funny to me. And um, I enjoyed it, I think, now more than I did even back then. It's a wonderful, wonderful statement. Okay, okay, let's do a little experiment here. Bill, say you were the manager of Spinal Tap instead <laughs> of Ian Faith. What would you have done differently to ensure that band's success or to at least avoid what they went through? I don't know if I could have done anything differently. I think he was spot on trying to manage everything, trying to manage the artwork, trying to manage relationships between the band, with the label, you know, battling the Yoko of the group. He balanced it, I thought, pretty well. And ultimately, sometimes the market makes a decision. And the market, at a certain point, said to the group that you worked until it doesn't work. It's sometimes hard. It's like working with an athlete where they've had a great run, but there's a point even for Michael Jordan where uh, father time, mother nature becomes undefeated and it's time to figure out something else you know, for David and Nigel. At a certain point, you can only smash so many televisions with a cricket bat and the impact becomes diminished over time. <laughs> <laughs> Muted. Sure. Uh, hey, man- I wish I had that cricket bat <laughs> on many occasions, for sure. Bill, you seem so chill. I can't imagine you wielding a cricket bat like that. You know, the thing about hip hop, you're taking young people sometimes from the harshest environments. And one minute, they literally can be living in a housing project with 10 relatives in a two-bedroom apartment. And within a blink of an eye, given a check by Atlantic Records for $2 million. You know, it's hard to contemplate that sociological jump and that financial jump to go from the projects to now a seven-figure valuation. Um, you know, I was brought in as a consultant for a very high-profile young African-American vocalist who's still a superstar. But his label just, they were at wit's end. So they thought, let's bring in the public enemy guy. And he's <laughs> on the board of the National Urban League and the Apollo Theater. And he writes op-eds for the Times. Maybe he can talk some sense. Mm -mm, no, I couldn't. I needed the cricket bat. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I'm gonna, if I hit you in the head, young brother, you know, <laughs> that's where those frustrations can come in. Because you want to help out. And a lot of times, for various reasons, historical, sociological, some of the artists can get in their own way. So, yes, that's where the bat comes in. <laughs> so what would you call the black version of This is Spinal Tap? Oh, we did. It was called CB4. There you go. Easy one. There's a soft <laughs> Easy one. Yeah, a layup. Yeah. yeah. It's a layup. <laughs> Okay, let me just tell our listeners uh, who don't know what CB4 is. CB4 is a movie from 1993 that Bill produced starring Chris Rock, and it's a mockumentary about a rap band. Well, you know what I loved about seeing that film, Bill? I thought it was super cool, actually, that right up front, there were all those icons talking about CB4, like Eazy-E and Ice-T and... Ice Cube and and even the butthole surfers thrown in for good measure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, 
especially for Easy E because you know CB4 is in essence a parody of NWA. So for Easy for Cube that they had enough sense of humor to endure parody. You know, we thought was cool to have a young Shaquille O'Neal. Oh my God, almost unidentifiable. Yeah. Right. You know, I have. Let me just interrupt you for a second to tell you a little Shaquille O'Neal story of my own. So I was in LA, like in the mid 90s, with my band, and we were at Jerry's famous deli in the middle of the night. It must have been like three in the morning. And one of my bandmates came out of the bathroom and said, I think I just ran into Shaq's shoes. Because <laughs> you know, his, his shoes. <laughs> the size 22. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And next thing I know, yeah. Shaquille O'Neal comes out of the bathroom and he sits in a booth with this odd assortment of people. It was um, a transgender individual, a prostitute, and a toady. And it was completely out of like a Fellini film because Shaq didn't say a word. He's just sipping on a Coke. And everyone else was just having this crazy conversation. And we were just sure. in awe watching the whole thing, really amused by it. Wow. Uh, Jerry's great place. Great place where, you know, Rick Rubin would hold court. Oh, really? When uh, he came out to Los Angeles and formed American Records, first deaf American Records, and there's right. a story there. And then uh, it uh, later on became American Records. Tell us the story. Well, there was the death of deaf. Oh, right, 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 right. So, you know, Rick founded Def Jam Recording. It's not Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, it's Rick Rubin. He creates the label in his dorm room at NYU. And then later, after releasing one single, he meets Russell Simmons. And the two of them decide to become a partner in the company and, and build it up. So after their years of partnership and success together, and they decide to go their separate ways, Rick brings his new label, Deaf American Records, out to Los Angeles. And he's doing Rick Rubin, combination of hip-hop and rock and roll. So the Black Crows and the Ghetto Boys are uh, basically on the same label right? under Deaf American. But there was a certain point where Rick felt that he was becoming detached from hip-hop. He's out in California. He doesn't have the same connections to the music or the culture that he had when he was in New York. So he decides to have a ceremony in LA called the Death of Death. The ceremony was, in essence, going to be a funeral for Death being attached to American, of which the eulogy and the ceremony itself would be overseen by the Reverend Al Sharpton. Oh, my goodness. Along with that, the future of American recordings now would be presented and dissected at the ceremony by the amazing Kreskin, the mentalist. <laughs> my assignment was to perform the Kaddish, the Jewish prayer for the dead, in Hebrew. Now, clearly, I'm not Jewish. <laughs> I know no Hebrew. Luckily, I convinced Rick otherwise, and I just wrote a poem about Def Jam. In Yiddish. Not in, <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not in Yiddish, but you know, I've had enough spilkus and surus in, in my career to get over. It was as motley a crew of human beings ever assembled. Tom Petty attended. He's in the audience. Amazing. Roseanne Arquette. 
I mean, it's just, it's sort of like the inflatable penis <laughs> moment. You know, once again, I'm assessing my life and my career <laughs> as I'm, you know, I'm looking around just weirdness, but that's what made all of this stuff so exciting and fun. I am so delighted to hear that story, Bill. And please confirm or deny whether this part of things is urban legend, but didn't Rick also buy a plot at Hollywood Forever Cemetery? Yes, he did. <laughs> to bury the words deaf or something like that? We all went there. <laughs> is it there? I don't know if it's still there, but it might be. And I'm forgetting the bowling alley nearby that we went to, to have the repast. Unbelievable. Yeah. For our listeners who don't know Hollywood forever, that's a cemetery in LA where multiple film stars from the golden era of Hollywood yeah. are resting in peace and that kind of thing. The Ramones are there. Really? Yeah. Johnny Ramones there. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I, all I can say is <laughs> Rick Rubin took that funeral to 11. There's no <laughs> question about that. Yeah. He definitely took it to 11. You were at the founding of Public Enemy, and as your career moved on, you aligned yourselves with other artists who were some of the most creative and provocative in their genres, like Paul Mooney and people that were making serious social and cultural commentary. Was that a deliberate kind of thing that you were looking for, or was this more serendipity? It was serendipity. Half of the year, I lived in the Mondrian Hotel on Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood working on Hollywood films as a music supervisor. So I'm at the Mondrian, which sits directly across Sunset Boulevard during those years from the Comedy Store, which was the absolute palace for stand-ups. So for every now and then, I would head over to the Comedy Store to check out stand-ups. My wife is a huge Paul Mooney fan, and she had been just imploring me to check out Paul Mooney. You know, Paul had already developed a reputation in the town as the creative muse for Richard Pryor, as a stand-up of his own right of just tremendous ability and capability, and an observer of racial issues and race relations, non-parel. So, I'm there one night, just checking him out, and, you know, as Mooney would be, he'd say... I am the N-word vampire. <laughs> I'm going to stay up all night. And for stand-ups, you're in the club and you get the red light. It's time for you to get off. He would watch that red light for about three hours <laughs> and just continue and continue. It's the early 90s. It's before Rodney King. It's before OJ. We're two years after Do the Right Thing and Spike. And I just thought, hey, you know, this guy not only talks about the issues, but he's really very funny. And I can't believe that nobody's working with him. He doesn't have a TV show, doesn't have a record label relationship, or people scared of him, so forth. So I had a new record distribution deal with a company called Tommy Boy Records. So I thought it made sense to work with Mooney, and I was lucky to spend about 10, 12 years consistently recording him, 
writing with him, sort of directing him on things that he already commented on. But, you know, sometimes you just need a flavor flav in your life, right? You need, you know, a hype man to allow for energy and sometimes even focus. And I tried to be that for him during those years. And we were able to see his career go from the cool stuff that we did together to the rise of his stand-up career. And then later he goes on to Chappelle and the overall recognition of his work and of his art and his impact. It really became self-evident when he did pass last year. I'm watching NBC Network Nightly News and, and Lester Holt comes on announcing you know, his passing and then they have a full package about his life. I'm like, Paul Mooney's on, if only he could see this now. And he probably is, but I cannot believe that these people have me. Because he, you know, he, he did a whole thing where he was condescending about everything, that they did something about COVID before they announced my death. I cannot believe it. You know, that was Mooney. He was kind of a throwback. I mean, he was uncompromising, and that was to his artistic benefit, but his career detriment. Look at him versus Pryor, right? Pryor kind of played the game, and that's why Pryor became huge. Mooney never played the game. No. Even on Chappelle, they have to carve these Mooney segments, right? It's not like yeah, Mooney's yeah. introduced into sketches. No, Mooney is Mooney, and let's see what we could do with uh, Negro Damas, right? I mean, Negro Damas, yes. <laughs> yes. He has to be Mooney. Let's, how can we work with that? But he was Mooney, right? And, and that's why he was so great. He did nothing, but Chris Rock would always call him Mr. Black Saturday Night. Yo was respected, but always was on the verge of an opportunity or stardom. But usually he did something to screw up that opportunity. You know, he had situations and circumstances that may have catapulted him to prior like status, but he enjoyed the level that he was at because he had a certain freedom attached to that. You working with the guy closely for 12 years, you must have come into some crazy situations. Can you share something? I remember he had a, a huge show that we had put together for him in Washington, D.C. at the Warner Theater. Oh, yeah, it's a beautiful theater. Yeah, beautiful, not far from the White House. Yeah. And, you know, it was this huge showcase that was very unique for his career. The day before, we're just driving around D.C. with a member of our staff who was, in essence, our Bobby Fleckman. <laughs> and she's in the backseat with Mooney, and we're just joshing along. And she uh, looks and says, oh, my gosh, look, there's a rabbit. It's so great to be in D.C. It's such a wonderful place. So Mooney, being as condescending <laughs> as he could be sometimes, says, excuse me, that is not a rabbit. That is a ghetto squirrel. You don't know the difference between a rabbit at this point and a plain old ghetto squirrel. Well, I completely feel sorry for you. <laughs> and I looked, I said, yeah, I guess that kind of is a squirrel. <laughs> yeah. But it was vintage Mooney of providing clarity when, you know, maybe that level of condescending clarity probably wasn't needed. Oh, man. That's a great story, Bill. You know, so much of life, Bill, is being at the right place in the right time. And it's really amazing because 
the late 70s, early 80s, especially in New York, are just an incredible creative crucible. That's the scene where you're at Rick Rubin and Def Jam, and you're kind of a hidden figure in the the whole mix, but it's got to be somewhat gratifying. In 2017, hip-hop became the most streamed genre over rock. Like, who would have ever thought, right? No one had a clue. And I think that was the secret for the sauce, that we weren't thinking about becoming anything other than having fun and being creative. You know, for me, it's the accident of birth and location. You know, all of this stuff is coming together. Hip-hop couldn't happen or the merging of hip-hop and punk and thrash and dance, disco, the gay club scene. You know, that couldn't happen today in Manhattan just by virtue of the economics of being in the city. Those clubs and those areas where folks partied were abandoned factories on the Lower East Side and under Canal Street in uh, Lower Manhattan. You know, you had all of these open spaces, not only for music, but for art. And that's how you get Keith Haring and Andy Warhol and John michel Basquiat. You know, my wife will get on me to this day because I was in clubs with Basquiat and paid no attention to him because he was just a guy, yeah. you know, he's just a cool guy who's, you know, so all right, he's in rap groups too. And they're telling me he's an artist and all right, just part of the landscape of the tapestry. But that was just the specialness of that time in that moment that there were no rules to music, to relationships, to thoughts, ideas. We were all just hanging out, trying to figure out how we could do something cool. Bill, I can't tell you how much fun this has been. I mean, you lived through historic times and participated in historic things. It's just incredible what we've talked about. Where can our listeners find out what you're up to today? There is an active project I'm trying to bring attention to. It is the anthology of the history of hip hop created in partnership with the Smithsonian Museum and the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It features 129 songs from the history of of rap music 1979 to 2013 so it goes from king tim the third and the fatback band and the sugar hill gang in 1979 all the way up to drake and started from the bottom wow this is not a definitive collection in any way shape or form because you know the idea was to create some sort of tangible academic approach to the music in the culture and the package itself created by say adams who was our former art director at def jam just is incredible i'm part of the executive committee who put it together and i think i wrote you know about five or or six pieces that you can find in the anthology great and where do people find it bill I, I would say just, you know, throw into Google National Museum of African American History or Smithsonian Hip Hop Anthology, and that will lead you to the website. 
And your old collaborator Chuck D is in the mix on curating that as well, yeah? Yeah, he brought me to it. And Quest Love and Bill Adler, not easy to put together. We started working on this in 2015. And uh, so it took five, six years to get all the rights and and the artwork and the wonderful photos. Uh, There are CDs for those who remember legacy technologies. (laughs) We wanted a tactile experience, a tangible experience. So we do have CDs, but there are ways obviously that you know, the CDs can be converted so they can be enjoyed. Bill, this was really special. Thank you so much for sharing your stories. Thank you so much for coming. Not at all. This was so much fun. We hope you enjoyed this blast from the TMEP past. Check out our other episodes with members of The Replacements, Heart, The Lumineers, Garbage, Pixies, Slater Kinney, and even comedian David Cross, actress Julie Bowen, and many, many others. You can find our entire catalog on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And visit our website at tmepshow.com. This is Alex Hoffman. And I'm Alan Keller. Thanks for joining us on Too Much Effing Perspective. Although it would be as great as having armadillos in our trousers, this podcast is not affiliated with This Is Spinal Tap, and no person or entity connected with the film has sponsored or endorsed its content. This podcast is not affiliated, sponsored, or licensed by Authorized Spinal Tap LLC or Century of Progress Productions. Too Much Effing Perspective is a Milwaukee Talkies original. Ready for a head-bangingly good time? Dive into the world of heavy metal with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Here... We don't just talk music. We welcome you into our heavy metal family. Join us for candid chats with legends and rising stars. We go beyond the typical interviews, exploring raw emotions and the life-altering impact of heavy metal. So whether you're a diehard metalhead or just curious, join our family and let the headbanging begin with the Brutally Delicious Podcast. Evergreen Podcast Network.